Today's episode of Carson Sack is brought to you by Bumble, where women take the first move. Connecting has never been more fun, safe, or awesome. Bumble shows you the people you want to see and lets you connect by a mutual op and by swiping right. You can find the love of your life on Bumble, so you might as well give it a try. This episode is also brought to you by Budweiser. I'm just a regular guy who wants the same things everybody else wants. Food, family, shelter, friends, and plenty of ice-cold Budweiser. Just not necessarily in that order. This episode of The Sack is also brought to you by Jack Daniels. In Lynchburg, Tennessee, you can park in the middle of the road, talk to a neighbor about taxes or the weather, you can pick enough wild blackberries to fill a tin bucket, and you can see a distillery where Jack Daniels made whiskey way back in 1866. They still make it in a slow, deliberate fashion, much as he did. One sip, and you'll be glad to know that they don't ever plan to stop. Jack Daniels, smooth sipping Tennessee whiskey. Hit that ish. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 21st episode of Carson Sack Podcast. Finally, the Sack can go to the bars legally, can throw away that Ohio fake. It's going to be taking some John Wall shots, some Vegas bombs. If you see him out at a bar, don't be afraid to come up to him and buy him a drink. He would surely appreciate it, and I'm sure at a later date, he would get you back totally. We got a lot of great segments planned for this episode of The Sack. Of course, we're going to talk about college football. We're going to talk about NFL. But in the spirit of the 21st episode, I am going to rank the top five most alcoholic best athletes. I mean, yes, you might be an alcoholic, but if you aren't worth a shit in your profession, you're not going to be on this list. Also, we're going to get into a little bit of a serious talk about the whole players kneeling for the national anthem and stuff like that. I feel like this podcast, it, it it's kind of a, not a joke, but it tries to be a little lighter side of things, kind of be funny, but I just want to show my range, show you how I can be serious at times. So we're going to dive into that probably at the end of the episode. But first, like I said, we're going to kick it off with my top five best alcoholic players in the profession. So before we get to the top five, I want to start off with an honorable mention with two guys who are on the same team. Uh, you got Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry, both on the Mets. Took them to a World Series. Dwight Gooden pitcher, Daryl Strawberry, a great outfielder with a big bat. Both would kind of fuel each other's alcoholism and other drug usage. In the uh, 30 for 30, they had they talked about going to the clubhouse in between innings and taking some swigs of alcohol, doing some coke and stuff. But both of these guys were great athletes. Like I said, they got the Mets to the World Series. Dwight Good was considered one of the best pitchers when he was on. Daryl Strawberry, like I said, great outfielder with a great bat. He'd be putting up 30-plus home runs a year with almost 
90 to 100 RBIs guaranteed every year. So these teammates fueled each other's addiction. So they're going to be my honorable mentions before we get into the list. So, again, I have two guys for the number five spot. I got Jailer Smith and Brett Favre. The reason I give these guys their things, Brett Favre has been to uh, alcohol rehab a couple times. Jailer Smith never been to rehab, but like I said, the reason I put these guys at number five, they're just like everybody else. Once they get some alcohol in them, they get drunk, they shoot their shot. And shooters shoot. J.R. Smith sliding into DMs, asking if girls want the pipe. Brett Favre sending dick pics. Like I said, just a couple regular guys who do some dumb shit when they're drunk. So, J.R. Smith, Brett Favre, my number five on the alcoholic athlete list. The fourth alcoholic athlete, I gotta go with Joe Namath. He did drink in his career, but in 2003 on Sunday Night Football... He was hammered, out of his mind. Some would even say blacked out, as the kids say these days, and hit on Susie Kahlberg, said he wanted to kiss her on the mouth during his interview. Just, again, another guy shooting a shot when he's drunk, just like a lot of us. So, Joe Namath, for his actions, Sunday Night Football 2003, trying to kiss Susie Kahlberg on the mouth, Joe Namath, Rank fourth on this list. The number three athlete on this list is Wade Boggs, who claims he could drink 107 beers per day. Also, it's rumored that when he played for the Red Sox, the third baseman smashed 64 cans of beer on a trip from L.A. to Boston. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia made an episode about this, and like I said, couple of people and college students, they uh, have the thing, the Wade Boggs drinking day, where they wear a white t-shirt and tally up each beer they've made, trying to get to 64. It's a little dangerous, but if that's true, the 107 beers a day or the 64 beers on the cross-country flight, either one of them, so impressive. So Wade, you come in at number three on the list. The number two athlete and I say I put this in quotations uh you can't see that but people are gonna say oh he's not an athlete he's a wrestler if you're saying that fuck off they are athletes whether you want to admit it or not but number two on this list Andre the Giant in one sitting it's said by multiple other wrestlers and people in the bar he downed 119 beers this man was 450 to 500 pounds and 7273 on a good day i 100% believe this his alcohol intake is ridiculous he was a big wine drinker it's also rumored he downed 14 bottles of wine in one night also pretty impressive. Then on another occasion, he drank two liters of vodka. That ridiculous amount. Unfortunately, because of his size and if we're being honest, some of the drinking habits, he did pass away of heart failure at the age of 46. And like I said, if you're going to be a jackass and say, oh, he's a wrestler, not an athlete, fuck off. Andre the Giant, number two on my list. And now for the number one athlete, alcoholic athlete of all time. I mean, are you surprised? Almighty, that's John Daly's music. 
So obviously the number one professional athlete drinker, John Daly, it's one said he drank a fifth of Jack Daniels every day at the age of 23. Just let that sink in. A fifth of Jack Daniels. Also, just another accomplishment. He was tossed off a British Airway flight for harassing a flight attendant while being drunk. Also, because of these drinking habits, at the nine in a tournament in nineteen in nineteen ninety eight, Daly was seen shaking throughout the round as he tried to play, and it was just very very uncomfortable to see that happen. And then 10 years later in 2008, he was found drunk outside of a North Carolina Hooters and taken into police custody that day. I mean, if we're being honest, you kind of need to be drunk to enjoy Hooters food. It's kind of hit or miss. I will say they got some, hey, free advertisement here, Hooters. Hit me up though. I'd love to advertise for you. Monday and Wednesday, all you can eat wings and fries. So I'll give them that. It's a pretty damn good deal. But if you just look at it, nobody, I feel like, has been associated with drinking and so synonymous with drinking as a professional athlete, as John Daly. I mean, he's succeeded in his career. He won the British Open, came out of nowhere to do that. He's now on the uh, Champions Tour, the Senior Tour, and apparently he's been sober for quite a time now. He does have his own bit of vodka. It's an Arnold Palmer mix with iced tea and lemonade and vodka. Never had the opportunity to taste it. I'm not 21 yet. I don't even know what alcohol tastes like. If you are over 21 and you want to call in, send me an email, I'll text anything. Let me know how it tastes. I can't wait to have my first beer in November. So just to recap the list one more time, number five, J.R. Smith and Brett Favre. Number four, Joe Namath. Number three, Wade Boggs. Number two, Andre the freaking giant. And number one, John Daly. So now that we handled that, let's put down the bottle. Let's stagger out of the bar party and let's talk some college football. So we got seven games to recap. I know that's a little bit more than I normally do, but these seven games were pretty important this past weekend. The first one we're going to get into is a hometown game. We got the Cats from UK going up against the Florida Gators, 20th in the country. The Cats have a 30-year losing streak to the Gators, and the Gators just added another year onto that losing streak on Saturday night. I was in in attendance at Kroger Field for the game, and I got to give a shout-out to the entire fans that were there for the Cats. It's going to be a while before these fans are that excited for another game because the Cats have a string of lesser opponents coming to Kroger Field. I think the next big one is going to be Tennessee in late October and then Ole Miss November 4th. I think those games are back-to-back. The Cats need the... uh, attendance to be like it was last Saturday for the Florida game. It's pretty heartbreaking to see how Kentucky lost that game. The Cats had a lead most of the game, honestly, and a lot of players stepped up and made some big plays. Charles Walker in the special teams game on the punt return, he had a great return, 61 yards. He also had a huge catch on fourth down in the fourth quarter that would have set up a game-winning field goal we'll get to why that didn't happen but a huge huge I can't stress it enough fourth down catch to get the first down for the Cats what bothers me the most about this game is 
twice, and I'm okay with it happening once in a game as a coverage breakdown. It happens from time to time. But for this to happen twice in a game, it's unexcusable, and it's on the coaching staff. There were two plays where touchdowns were scored for Florida where UK loaded the box with all 11 players. Yes, they were almost guaranteed run plays, but that's the thing. You never 100% know. And one of them, I don't remember what quarter it was in, but it got a touchdown. The guy was at the bottom of the screen. Um, I think it was about a 45-yard touchdown. Like I said, one time in a game, I'll let it slide. But in the fourth quarter, with about 49 seconds left, Florida, again, looks like they're going to run the ball. They were down near the goal line. I think they were on the three or the one through the three-yard line. And then UK, once again, loads the box, all 11 players, and a guy is at the top of the screen just calling for the ball before the play even happens. And Florida's quarterback recognizes that, throws a nice little loft pass to him, literally Anybody in that stadium could have caught that ball. I'm confident that a freaking four-year-old to a 98-year-old could have caught that ball. Again, that's unexcusable. You got, it's like I said, it's on the coaching staff. And after the game, everyone was fire stoops. He's a terrible coach. I personally don't think you should. Every year, Stoops has the most important game of his career. And... If you look at it, that's probably going to be the Tennessee game once it rolls around. It used to be the South Carolina game, the Florida game as well, things like that. And I think Stoops is one of the best things to happen to this program in a long time. His recruiting is good. If you look at it, yes, UK, not the worst team in the SEC, but obviously not in that upper echelon of SEC teams just yet. Right in the middle of the pack, but Stoops does a great job of recruiting Ohio, recruiting some states in the South, gets some players from the Midwest as well. Just He puts a lot of effort into recruiting and getting the guys that fits his system real well, so I appreciate that as a UK fan. It really hurts me how we lost the game. Like I said, Charles Walker, huge fourth down conversion. Benny Snell then runs it up the middle for about eight yards, puts us in a great position. I think it would have been about a 34-yarder field goal to win by McGinnis, who he is clutch as hell. You saw that in the U of L game last year. Obviously, more than likely, you can't say it 100%, but 34 yards, it's right in his wheelhouse. He should have, would have probably made the field goal to win, but... On Benny Snell's eight-yard scamper, there's a holding call. If you look at it, I'm trying to be extremely biased here. It doesn't honestly look like a holding call. It looks like an aggressive play. I'll give you that. But to call holding on that, I get the refs have to officiate until the final whistle. But sometimes you just got to let the boys play. And I think that's a play and a call. You just, you just kind of let go. It wasn't really holding. It was just more of an aggressive play. And honestly, it's 50-50 on it if you're going to call it. And personally, I think the 50 on that, it shouldn't have been called. The Cats, though, they rebound next week against East, Eastern Michigan. What I was excited to see is how Steven Johnson and I forget his first name, but the running back... K- 
King stepped up huge. He only had five carries, but he made the most out of every carry. He had 64 yards, and then Juice Johnson, he showed, hey, I'm pretty reliable, and I think he asserted himself as the number one receiver if there were any questions already, but he had four receptions, 56 yards, and a touchdown, and then Steven Johnson, little bit better than a game manager, which he's kind of been the first couple games. 196 yards, okay, but three touchdowns, that's what he's going to have to do for them to win these close games like that. Moving on, we look at a big ACC upset. We had North Carolina State going to Florida State and pulling out a big win, 27-21. to Florida State just didn't show up in this game. North Carolina State just killed them in every aspect of the game. North Carolina State 3-1 on the year. Florida State 0-2. It's looking pretty rough for the Seminoles in the ACC. They're going to have a hard time making a big impact in the ACC. They might be able to ruin some teams' chances to win the ACC, but it's a big uphill battle for them, it looks like, to win the ACC itself. North Carolina State positions themselves again to be back in the mix to get to the ACC championship game. North Carolina State all year has some buzz been talked about. Hey, they're a little slept on. They're pretty good, everything like this. This game just showed it, and it was a bit of a surprise. But if North Carolina State can keep up what they've been doing the first four games, they are going to be just fine this entire year. And now the next game, a huge matchup in the Big 12, and the upset I called last week, it came to fruition, so I'm a bit of a big, I know I know what I'm talking about, that's what it shows, I'm talking about the 16th ranked Horned Frogs from TCU going to the 6th ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys and pulling out a huge victory. Uh, Kenny Hill didn't have a huge game, but that's all right. He did have a touchdown through the air, did have an interception, though. But the big story in this, Darius Anderson runs for 106 yards and three touchdowns. And then TCU's defense did a good job of the bend-don't-break philosophy there. I mean, Mason Rudolph still put up almost 400 yards, missed it by two. He did put up two touchdowns, but like I said, the whole bend don't break situation, he did throw two interceptions. TCU's defense is very, very good. Uh, Doug Peterson there is a great defensive-minded coach. If they can get the offense going a little bit more, TCU is deadly. I am very high on them. Last year, I was high on them. Picked them to win the national championship, actually, and Obviously, that didn't happen, but this year, I'm not going to go out on a limb just yet with them, but a huge win to start Big Ten, Big 12, excuse me, play for them. If they were in the Big Ten, they'd get smacked every week, but like I said, a big win for them to help their cause to get top two seed to make the Big 12 championship game, and here... Yes, it was at home, but Oklahoma State, they're good enough to rebound from this. You got a great quarterback in Mason Rudolph who is going to be able to win games for you. If their defense can get it going a little bit more, which they didn't in this game, they'll be fine. Mike Gundy is a good enough coach to hype these players up, get them to rebound in the coming weeks. Um, I don't take Oklahoma State out of the race for the Big 12 at all just yet, but a big statement win to show TCU, the people, the fans, and the committee, hey, we're pretty for real, don't sleep on us, after the 44-31 win at Oklahoma State. And then the next game, 
It was another upset pick that I had, and Purdue just couldn't pull it out for me. What the big news was, Michigan wins this game 28-10. Spath, the starting quarterback for Michigan, was pulled, and then John O'Korn came in and just made that offense click a little bit more. He had 270 yards and a touchdown. What I was really happy about for Michigan, they kind of got the run game finally going. Chris Evans, almost 100 yards, misses it by three yards. But he did have two touchdowns, and that was only on 14 carries. So very productive day for him. Another big thing that was a positive for Michigan in this game, their defense, who was replacing 10 starters, held a very good offensive-minded coach in Jeff Brom and a good offensive team, a little offensive juggernaut, if you will, held them to only 10 points. The game was at Purdue. Like I said, I think this is probably the biggest game, not in Purdue history maybe, but in the recent years, probably their biggest game. And their fans showed out. That's a big thing. They do. They're hit and miss. They do show up for the big games, kind of like other teams, but the lesser games, they're not really there. But like I said, the fans did show up for this one. Michigan, an all-around good team effort to win this game. I'm interested to see how Harbaugh is going to manage the quarterback situation. Spath, Spath has been good for them the past two years. I understand this year he's been down a little bit, but overall I think he's the better quarterback and has been in the system, knows a little bit better than O'Corn, but like I said, interested to see how Harbaugh is going to manage this. I think you throw Spath back in there uh, to start the game next week, and if he doesn't perform, O'Corn... It's his. If he comes in and performs, it's his job to lose. And again, another big shout out for the Michigan defense who held Purdue to only 10 points, replacing 10 starters. That's so difficult to do, but their defense really stepped up this week. And if their defense can keep doing that and they can figure out the quarterback situation and Chris Chris Evans can continue to run the ball as well as he did, Michigan is a very dangerous not team, not only in the Big Ten, but the national title picture as well. And now another, I don't want to say a big Big 12 matchup, but the antics before the game kind of made it big. There was a bit of a skirmish by Oklahoma and Baylor. Oklahoma did end up pulling out the victory 49-41. The game was at Baylor. Baker Mayfield got a little little heated argument before, said, you all forgot who daddy was. I'm going to have to spank you. I didn't personally like that comeback. It was a little too sexual for me. Little, I have no problem with the gays, but a little too gay for me. I'm sorry. I'll say that. But Baker Mayfield did have a bit of a pedestrian day. And I mean, I say pedestrian day because it's not as good as numbers as he normally puts up. I mean, he did have three touchdowns and 283 yards. But the big thing was... Baylor, they're going in this game, they were 0-3, and I get it. It was probably one of their biggest games to start out the Big 12 play, but to come out and having to rebound from the scandals and losing Art Bryles and everything like that the past couple years, this team and this program is trying to rebound, and it's going to take some years to rebuild, but I am encouraged by this. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination the Baylor's going to make any noise in the Big 12 or really nationally, but it's encouraging to see that they're going to show up for big games, it looks like, and they're going to be competitive once they get things going. Oklahoma looks really good throughout the year on both sides of the ball. I get their defense did give up 41 points, but even though Baylor is a little down, their offense, I feel like, under Little Bryles, I don't 
remember his first name, but he's the OC. I think that is always going to be there for Baylor. Oklahoma third in the country. They're still top of the Big 12. They control their destiny completely. I like Oklahoma to just keep this momentum rolling throughout the year after a big, big effort win at Baylor 49-41. And then the last game we look at, we had Penn State going to Iowa. The Nittany Lions fourth in the country. And like I said, Iowa is such a tough place to play. Before we get into the game, I just want to say they have one of the best new traditions in college football. And I want to say in, I guess, sports itself. At the start of the game, they wave to the children's hospital that overlooks the stadium. And that is just so cool and impressive and meaningful to me. And I'm sure so meaningful and encouraging to the kids that are in that hospital. So shout out to Iowa for doing that. Now to get to the day to the game, McSorley for Penn State, the quarterback, had 284 yards on a touchdown and an interception, threw the ball 48 times. That's not normal for a James Franklin coach team, so kind of surprised by that. But Shaquan Barkley, 28 carries, 211 yards and a touchdown. He is also, he led the team in receiving 12 receptions at 94 yards, really showed his well-roundedness as he is as a player, so... That's good to see. And then the uh, at the end of the game, Jawan Johnson, as time expired, catches a touchdown. It was just just very, very impressive, impressive to see Penn State be able to handle going into a hostile, rowdy environment like Iowa and come out with a big, hard-fought win and a big win in the Big Ten because I think any team that's going to have to go to Iowa is – Always on upset alert because Iowa is just so, they're a well-rounded team. I know I say that about a lot of people, but they really are. Their quarterback, uh, Stanley, he keeps them in so many games. He had 10 touchdowns going into this game, throws for two more, so he's got 12. He only threw for 191 yards, but didn't have any turnovers, so you can't really put the loss on him. But it's, like I said, anybody going to Iowa is going to have to play a good, hard-fought game to come out on top. So, like I said, Penn State, fourth in the country, comes out with a big win, 21-19 over the Hawkeyes this past weekend. And then the last game we look at now, we had the 17th-ranked Mississippi State Bulldogs, 3-1 and one on the year, 2-1 and one going into the game. But they go to the 11th-ranked Georgia Bulldogs and get hammered. Georgia wins the game 31-3. to From for Georgia, the quarterback, coming in, filling in for Easton. He has another good game, 201 yards, two touchdowns. No real big mistakes, but Nick Chubb here on 15 carries, he has 81 yards, so not real good average, but he has two touchdowns, just dominates the running game. He was carving up Mississippi State's defense all day. The big story here is Georgia's defense, Holden Fitzgerald, the very dynamic quarterback for Mississippi State. He had 83 yards through the air on 29 passes, so you can't say he didn't have opportunities to put up big yards. I mean, their leading receiver for Mississippi State, Gibson, only had 52. No, I apologize. That's the rushing. I'll talk about that. He only had five carries, so they were throwing the ball a lot. Gibson only had 52 yards on the ground, but their leading receiver, Thomas, He only had two receptions for 41 yards. That's just not going to get done in the SEC. I talk about it every week, but Georgia's defense is so good. Kirby Smart, the defensive-minded coach for them, is so good. Ten returning starters. I love their defense, and I love Georgia. Like I said at the start of the year, they're my sleeper playoff pick. And now 
TCU has kind of slid in that with them for me, but Georgia is still one of my sleeper playoff picks. They're atop of the SEC East. They're going to have some big matchups against Tennessee and Florida coming up. And then the UK Wildcats, they go to them. I don't expect that to be a real competitive game, but have to throw it in there because I'm a Cats fan and go to UK. But Georgia, if they keep progressing and then Eason comes back, which has rumored he's going to be back sooner than later, which is a big boost for this team because I think he's probably a top four, top three quarterback in the SEC when he's healthy and gets things going. He's only a sophomore too, which is big for them because he's been in the system, has played some big games for them already in his year and a half that he's been there at Georgia. So, Georgia keeps progressing, which it really looks like they're going to. They have played some tough games this year so far at Notre Dame. They win that one. And then Mississippi State, who is a very dynamic team with some dynamic playmakers. They come in and they just dominate them on both sides of the ball. Like I said, Georgia 31-3, big victory to make a statement that they're the real Bulldogs in the SEC. Now we recapped, as usual, we move on to some previews of next week, and I got five games I want to talk about, and the first one is Mississippi State going to Auburn. Mississippi State falls in the rankings to 24th, but Auburn, they're sitting at 13th, 3-1 against 3-1 this year. Auburn's quarterback, Stidham, on the year, he's got 846 yards, so he's killing it in the passing game with that, but only three touchdowns and two interceptions, going to need to improve on that. I think Mississippi State comes out in this game and makes a statement that last week, not a fluke, but it's pretty embarrassing for them, and they want to show that, hey, that's not us, that's not our team. If Fitzgerald for them gets going, like I said, dynamic playmaker can get you points through the air on the ground with his scrambling ability and his arm, it is so big, he can, with a flick of the wrist, throw the ball 60 yards, it seems like, so... I expect Mississippi State to come out, play real aggressive, play real fast, real strong. But in the end, I think Auburn, it helps that they're going to be at Auburn. I think they come out with the win, but I expect this to be a really close game. But in the end, Auburn pulling it out. And then we move out west. We're going back, back to Cali. Cali, well, we're not. We're actually going to Washington. But I'm going to talk about a team from Cali. We got the fifth-ranked USC Trojans going to 16th-ranked Washington State Cougars. Both teams 4-0 on the year. And what I'm very interested to see from this game is how Mike Leach and Falk for Washington State. Falk has 1,378 yards already, has only thrown the ball 169 times, and he's completed 130 of those, so only 39 incompletions on the year through four games. That's almost only 10 incompletions a game, which is real big. Also, he only has one interception on the year, which is good because it's showing, hey, I'm making good choices. I'm not turning the ball over. He's got 14 touchdowns on the year. What is a little concerning is Morrow, their uh, running back, only has 28 carries on the year. But if the passing game is working for them, it's understandable he's not getting a lot of carries. What I'm interested in is to see how Mike Leach and their squad plans for them for the offensive attack. Obviously, like I said, USC... Washington State is known for their passing attack. I'm interested to see the matchup between the offense for Washington State and the, I think, pretty underrated USC defense. If Washington State can come out and run the ball, which I don't think USC is really going to plan for as much as they should, if Washington State can come out and run the ball, they're going to have a really good chance to win this game, especially because it's at Washington State. 
I just think Sam Darnold is so good that he's going to be able to win so many games and keep USC in so many games, no matter how everyone else on the team is doing. I think this game is pretty close, but I think Washington State pulls away at the end. I say pull away, I say like a 7 or 10 point victory, which you might say, hey, that's not really pulling away, but I think they make a big statement when Mike Leach gets things going back, turns some more heads, puts some more eyes on Washington State, and kind of announces, hey, we're you can sleep on us all you want, but we're going to play a big part, big role in deciding who wins the Pac-12. So like I said... I'll take Washington State in this one, especially because it's at Washington State. Mike Leach, a great offensive mind. And because USC's defense probably isn't going to plan enough on the run. And 7-10 to point win for the Cougars. Now, like I mentioned before, Georgia going to Tennessee. Another big game for the SEC East. The only reason I would say the Vols have a chance is because it's at Tennessee. Every other reason that Georgia is going to win, I say their defense and their offense is just so much, it's so complete on both sides of the ball that any team is really going to have a have a hard time beating them. So just to keep this short and sweet, I think Georgia is a better team all around, and the only way Tennessee is going to win is if their home crowd plays a big part. Tennessee does have a good running back, though, in uh, Kelly, who has put up some big numbers all year, I mean, he has 450 yards and six touchdowns. Six touchdowns through four games. Almost, I don't know, I'm not good at math, so I'm not going to try and break that down. But he's a great player. I'm excited to see how he's going to fare against Georgia's great defense. But in the end, I think the Bulldogs just come out with a big SEC East win here in this game. And then, now we go down south for a, maybe not a big Big 12 matchup, but it's going to be a shootout. We got Oklahoma State, who fell to 15th in the country after this weekend loss to TCU. They're going to Texas Tech, where Cliff Kingsbury, he was the offensive coordinator for Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M when he won the Heisman. He is so slept on as a good offensive mind and just a good head coach. He's relatable to players. He's super young. I think he's I think one of the youngest, and I know he's one of the youngest. I want to say top three to five youngest coaches in the game. Uh, Shimanok for Texas Tech, he's put up some big numbers as well. He's got 1,248 yards and 11 touchdowns so far through three games, almost four touchdowns a game, and he's only got one interception on the year. So that's big. Again, shows he's a good, makes good decisions on the field, doesn't force passes, and he's not giving the team, not turning it over, not making mistakes. What I'm interested to see is how Mason Rudolph comes out and how they come out and just try and rebound from the loss last week. Texas Tech at the game, that's where it's taking place. So I'm interested to see how they're going to handle such a big game here. It's going to be a shootout. I don't know what the over is sitting at right now, but for sure take that because it's just going to be a shootout between both of these teams. In the end, though, I'm going to take Oklahoma State to come back, make a big win at Texas Tech, and rebound from last week's disappointing loss. And then the final game I want to preview for this weekend in college football is a huge ACC matchup. I can't stress how big of a game this is for both of these teams. We got Clemson second in the country, 4-0, going to 12th-ranked Virginia Tech, who's 4-0. If you listened to last week's episode, I had the segment Bold Balls where I predicted Clemson isn't going to win the ACC, and I kind of picked this game as one where they'd stumble and lose 
You got the true freshman, Jackson, at quarterback for Virginia Tech. Not on Mike Vick's level just yet. I don't know if he's ever going to reach that in his career at Virginia Tech, but right now he's already got 1,127 yards and 11 touchdowns. Again, only one interception as a true freshman. That's big. So it shows he's able to step up in big games. And then you got Kelly Bryant for Clemson, who... He's got more interceptions than he does touchdowns, and that's a little concerning. Going from Sean Watson to this, obviously a bit of a setback, a bit of a step down, but I think he showed in the U of L game he's an above he's an above game manager, not elite by any means, but in big games on the road he can step up, make good plays, and be a smart quarterback. Virginia's Tech. Virginia Tech's defense has consistently been good this year and so many years in the past. So, like I said, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't pick for Virginia Tech, and that's what I'm going to do. I think Clemson just stumbles a little bit, and Virginia Tech makes takes advantage of, I think, maybe one or two mistakes that Clemson makes. I think, again, just going out on him, I think... Clemson either turns the ball over in the special teams one time or Bryant throws an interception or two for those two turnovers and Virginia Tech takes advantage of it and gets a huge win in the ACC to catapult them right to the top of the ACC standings. Now we move to the NFL and put on your seatbelts because we have the rapid fire recap coming at you. First game, boom, on Thursday Night Football, wow, what a game. The Rams go to the 49ers. 49er? I barely even know her, but the Rams pull off a huge win, 41-39. Next game, boom, the Steelers go to the Bears where the Steelers just should have played dead because the Bears pull off a huge upset, 23-17, and steal a win at home. Next game, Boom. Browns go to the Colts and the Browns were a favorite. Jeez, that's something new. But just like their name, the Browns play just like shit and lose 31-28 to the dismal Colts. Next game, boom. Over in London. How come every time you come around my London, London Bridge want to fall down? Shout out Fergie. But the Ravens were falling down on their London Bridge. They probably just shouldn't even made the trip. They lose to the Jaguars. 44-7. Next game, boom. Broncos two go to Buffalo where it's all about them. Dollar dollar bills, y'all. 26-16 bills and a huge upset. Next game, boom. The Saints go to the Panthers where Cam Fig Newton might have been a little concerned with his fashion for the after-game press conference more than the game itself. Saints win this one 34-13 and go marching into the Panthers stadium. Next game, boom. Lions, Tigers, and Bears, and oh my god, the Falcons is what the Detroit Lions were saying as they lose a hard-fought game, though, 30-26 against the Falcons. Next game, boom, Buccaneers go to the Vikings, and Buccaneers, all they look for is booty, but guess what? That's exactly what they played like this weekend. Booty! Vikings win this one with backup quarterback Case Keenum, 34-17, and just like a cold file case, close it down. Next game, boom. The Texans go to the Patriots, where in Foxborough it's almost Ugg season and Tom Brady cannot wait. But the Texans play just like that. Ugg 
Reed. You G-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. You ugly. Yeah, yeah, you ugly. Patriots win a close game, 36-33. Next game, boom. The Giants go to the Eagles where Odell Beckham Jr. showed who's a good boy. Who's a good boy by taking two touchdowns in the end zone from receptions, but did take a piss on the field. But too bad the Giants just aren't a good team. Eagles win this one 27-24 in a big NFC East matchup. Next game, boom. The Seahawks go to the Titans where Marcus Mariota said, I ought to just win this game. And that's just what they do. 33-27 over the Seahawks. Next game, boom. Bengals at the Packers. Bengals finally reach the end zone for the first time on the year. But Mr. Aaron Rodgers says, wish you could be my neighbor. But you gotta get the fuck out of town. Packers win this one in overtime, 27-24. Last game, boom. Raiders go to the Redskins on Sunday night football, and the Redskins say, hey, you can come to our Indian Concitos, but you just ain't going to beat the house. Redskins, big upset this weekend, 27-10. So let's regroup. That was a pretty big segment. Um, really just, I got the juices going. So let's just take a second to calm down, and let's now look ahead to the next weekend in NFL. We can look ahead, but I just want to touch on one thing before we do that. This past weekend is, I think, the epitome of any given Sunday. There were so many upsets that happened. You had the Raiders losing to the Redskins. You had the Bills beating the Broncos. You had the Texans almost going into Foxborough and pulling off the big upset against the Patriots. Like I said, I think this past weekend just embodies the whole any given Sunday. Any team can beat any team any weekend. So now moving on, this episode's going a little long, so I'm only going to look ahead to four games. There are some other good games, but I got a lot more to touch on with the whole kneeling situation, and I'm going to spend a good amount of time on that, so I'm only going to preview four games for this upcoming week in the NFL. The first one, you have a huge AFC North matchup. You got the Steelers playing the Ravens going there. These games are always hard-hitting defensive battles, close games. I'm a Steelers fan. I love when we play the Ravens. Granted, it doesn't always go our way, but these games are always so good and just so competitive, and they always mean so much, no matter throughout the years, whether a team is out of it the players still just it's such a good rivalry and a big rivalry that the teams might be out of it for contention in the playoffs but they still just want to win this game so bad I'm going to take the Steelers in this one I think they're going to come out pissed off from last week and I think the Steelers defense really steps up and shows that they're legit and I really think they are legit and then Le'Veon Bell has kind of been a little disappointing this year I think he gets going against a bit of a lackluster run defense for the Ravens which just hasn't been their thing in the past but this year it's a little down but I think 
if they can, if he can do that, have a big game, maybe 120 yards and two touchdowns. I know that's kind of asking a lot, but he can open up the play action pass game so well for Ben that it will just help them out so much. Another little concerning thing: the Bears' pass rush last week played great. They are a good pass rushing team, but so are the Ravens and the O line for the Steelers just did not do their job protecting Ben last week. So that's just a little thing to watch for this game. How they progress from last week and continue to just watch throughout the year because Ben, if he has the time, he can move around, let the receivers do their job. They're going to be just fine, but if not, and he's got to scramble, be pressured. He has a history of injury proneness, so it's just something to see that hopefully the Steelers' O-line, their pass protection can progress throughout the year. Like I said, though, I'm going to take the Steelers over the Ravens for a huge AFC North win. Staying in the AFC, we go to the AFC South, where the Titans go to the Texans. Titans 2-1, Texans 1-2. Big AFC South matchup. You got the Jaguars there that... I just don't know if they're legit enough to be contenders in the AFC South. I think these two teams are the best in the AFC South. So, like I said, big game for this. I think the Texans step up. Their defense is so good with J.J. Watt, Clowney, and then their secondary is very good too. They do lose Brian Cushing, but... They've played so much without him because of his dumbass with steroids and stuff like that that they'll be able to adjust and be okay with that. I love their defensive coaches, Romeo Cornell and Mike Vrabel, just both good, smart, defensive-minded coaches. I think they're going to be able to slow down Marcus Mariota and the running attack of Derrick Henry and DeMarco Murray and really force Mariota to win the game through the air. And yes, Mariota can do that, but... I just don't think it's going to be able to be done this weekend. And Deshaun Watson has really progressed throughout the preseason and so far in his couple games that he's played. I like what he's got going on. Lamar Miller is going to need to be able to have a good game, which I think he can. DeAndre Hopkins has been stepping up with the loss of Fuller. And Braxton Miller just isn't playing as well. And then they lose their starting tight end. The whole passing game has really fallen on Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins trying to make their connections and really work on their chemistry. And I think that's only going to build week to week to week through practices, through games. So I expect a big game out of Hopkins and I expect a big game out of the Texans defense to get them a huge win in the AFC South. So I guess this is just a big conference division week. We have the 2-1 Lions going to the 2-1 Vikings. I'm still just not sold on Case Keenum as a good NFL quarterback. Granted, he did have a good weekend last week against, I think, of a bit of an overrated Buccaneers defense. Matthew Stafford just continues to prove that he's a good quarterback, I really feel like. He puts up good numbers. He just doesn't win a lot of games, which I think he has a, I know he has a sub 500 record against above 500 teams throughout his career. I think he's only won one or two, which is extremely disappointing and very disappointing for a guy that's getting as much money as he is. The Vikings are going to be just fine, no matter who is at quarterback, I feel like for them, because their defense is probably top three in the NFL. One of the biggest playmakers in the NFL that is so overlooked and just doesn't get as much credit maybe one of my he is for sure one of my favorite players in the league maybe not my favorite but Stefan Diggs is so good and is so dynamic in the passing game that 
He's always a threat to break a game wide open. And then Dalvin Cook has been great so far running the ball for the Vikings that it's really opened up the passing game. So I'm going to take the Vikings in this one. If Case Keenum can just not turn the ball over, maybe get two touchdowns, and then the Vikings defense steps up, I think Dalvin Cook has a good game. If the Vikings defense steps up and can slow down Matthew Safford, which I think they can, Vikings, again, get a big win in the NFC North early on in the season. And then the last game I'm going to look at is, again, huge, huge matchup. I think this is the biggest matchup of the weekend just because the division they're in is so difficult and loaded with such good teams. We got the Raiders going to the Broncos out of the AFC West, both upset last week, so both are probably going to come out firing on all cylinders, probably going to play pissed off, and I think both teams are going to play out of their minds. The Broncos' defense really underperformed last weekend after stepping up huge two weekends ago against Dallas, only held Ezekiel Elliott, second best running back in the league, I said it, not afraid to say it, to only eight or nine yards on either nine or eight carries, sorry, I'm not dyslexic, I just got my stats a little wrong there probably, but the Raiders defense with Khalil Mack, they're good too, but I think the Broncos' defense is going to step up a little bit more. I think Trevor Simeon is going to play a good enough game to have them win. And what is super underrated is the Broncos' running game. Jamal Charles is very dynamic. He's a bit more of a pass catcher now in his old age, coming off as many injuries as he has and the ACL tear last year. But C.J. Anderson has been great on the ground for them. I like how he plays. He runs hard. And both of those are good complementary backs for what they like to do. The short West Coast offense of passes for Trevor Simeon so the Raiders I think Derek Carr has a good game I think Amari Cooper has a good game but in the end in a hard-fought game I'm gonna say probably the best of the weekend in the biggest matchup of the weekend the Broncos come out on top Mm, yeah I'm not gonna give a score but the Broncos come out on top that NFL talk was brought to you by Jif peanut butter my kids all they care about is peanut butter so I make sure they get the best you know I wasn't sure if there was a best until I opened the three leading brands. I mean, can you even name the two other leading brands besides a GIF? I sure the hell can't. And I found GIF smells more like fresh peanuts. That's how I know GIF is better. As long as my kids care about peanut butter, I want to know they're getting the best. Which is GIF peanut butter? So now, like I said, after the NFL talk and the college football talk, all of that... I, like I said, I like to keep the podcast a little light, but sometimes you got to get serious. And this is a pretty serious topic since last year, since this year too, already through three games. It's the players kneeling for the national anthem. I know I'm probably going to get some backlash for this. I have no problem with players kneeling. I get it. It protests the you, you protest so many things within the United States, the government, the the cop abuse against black people. I get that. And I get some people say they're being hypocritical because defending the First Amendment, like the military does, like the government promotes, yes, you get the freedom to protest like that. But if these people take the needs to protest that, they're being hypocritical, and I get that. I see both sides of this. The people that do protest, they've they've seen some injustices in their minds, and if you want to sit there and say there hasn't been injustices, you're just flat out wrong in my opinion. But I see the other side where 
there's so many patriots and so many reasons why you can and should love this country that both sides have a good point for me. Now, one of the big demonstrations that I found a little upsetting was the Steelers, my favorite team. They didn't even come out for the national anthem, and that's a huge disrespectful thing in my opinion. Let your players protest, but there are so many people on that team, an ex-military man in Villanueva as well, that probably wanted to be out there for the national anthem, and there were probably people on the team that wanted to take a knee or sit down or hold their hands up in the air and stuff to protest. Give both both sides the chance to do what they want to do. That's what you have to do by the First Amendment, I feel like, and then like I said, Villanueva was the only player for them who was an ex-military man to come out, leave the locker room for the National Anthem. I respect that so much. Shows that he obviously cares about his country because of his service, and he's not going to let anybody disrespect him or his country. And like I said, I respect that so much. Another thing I find just a little upsetting is last year when Kaepernick started doing this, he really went out on the limb. He put his neck on the line for the issues that he saw. And what bothers me is how people want to say, oh, he doesn't care, all this stuff, when even after this, he can't get signed by an NFL team. Granted, he did make a good amount of money through his career so far and endorsements and things like that. So he's set financially, but people said, oh, he doesn't really care about the issues. He's just doing this to make a statement. He's not going to really help people. He's donated almost a million dollars to so many charities that help out African Americans in America. The Suit Foundation, where he gets um, African Americans who maybe not be able to afford suits for job interviews and other important things, I think that's one of the best causes that he's donated to. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know the other organizations, charities that he's given to, but it shows, honestly, that he really does care about the issues and takes a stand for what he believes in. So I think the people that say he doesn't really care about that are dead wrong. Building on that, though, how I talked about Kaepernick putting his neck out. Now, I'm not saying it's the cool thing to do by any means, but where were all these players last year that are now doing this stuff? Where were they last year? They didn't They didn't step up. Granted, I'm not saying they didn't care about the issues. In no way am I trying to imply that because they probably did. They were probably just a little concerned about the backlash, what their teammates, what the owners, general managers, fans would think about that. The big thing you have to realize is these players are making a big decision and a big statement and a big risk doing this. And I I respect them maybe for not kneeling, but taking a stance and trying to protest in a very peaceful way to shed light and get eyes on the issues. I understand it's not 100% helping the issue because they're really not going out of their way enough to like help African Americans in the country really. I understand it promotes things that the injustices and things like that that go against African Americans and the government, what they do. I get that, but there are so many other things besides kneeling that these players, if they really care, like Kaepernick, who really cares, they can go out, help charities, help inner city schools, things like that, help the youth, the African American youth that aren't getting as good of opportunities as they should. Go out, promote growth 
in your inner cities, in your hometowns, in the African-American communities. Do that on top of the kneeling that draws so much attention. Just show you really care by doing more than just kneeling. Another big thing that I think is overlooked but really shouldn't be is Yes, there are players that stand for the National Anthem, and I, again, 100% support that. And I don't want you to think that I'm siding with either side. Me, personally, this is going to seem like I'm taking a side now. I would stand for the National Anthem no matter what. I love this country. I always have. I always will. But I see both sides like I'm saying. What is another, like I said, big thing that is overlooked but really shouldn't be and should get some attention as well players that i've seen stand for the national anthem that are next to players that are kneeling they still support them they never go really out of the way to talk bad about them they still lock arms with them or put their hands on their shoulders i think that really speaks volumes to the team's and how togetherness they are, and how each player has each player's back, and just how supportive and close these players really are. The NFL is such a business that players move in and out of teams, and it might be difficult to build relationships unless you like know you're a star player who you're going to be trying kept on the same team for as long as possible. But throughout that, anybody, if you're not a star player, could be gone one week to the other, and it's on the players to come together, get close, talk about these sort of things, and have enough sense and enough empathy and sympathy for people that they still come together and support each other, which I think every team in the NFL really does do. And I know it's very hard to translate because NFL football games, they're just that. They're games. They're a distraction from problems like the injustices and everything like that they're a distraction for that what i think the communities and the world the united states especially could come together and learn from that because it's a big thing that happens the support that the players show with each other like i said it's a game but still statements can still be made positive on both sides they shows that People stand with America and trust this country that even in tough times that it'll get better and they'll get through it. And it shows that players that there might be going on with injustices, but they really do want to make a difference and make a statement that draws eyes to it. What I think that the United States, the people on opposite ends of this, on opposite ends of different issues can show each other needs to realize that each other side has a point. That, no, you don't have to support either side, especially if you're on opposite sides. I get you're not going to support the other side. But you need to respect each side and each point of view that there is. I th Like I said, the NFL teams come together and show enough support for players that the rest of the United States should take notes and take notice of that and realize, hey, I might not agree with them, but I need to respect their viewpoints because both sides have good points. 
this country is the greatest country on earth, always has been, always will be. I just wanted to share my viewpoints on this. I know it's a pretty serious topic, like I said, and I'm not very serious on here most of the time. I take this serious, but I like to keep it lighthearted, try and make you all laugh and make you all want to come back each week to listen to it and hopefully just take your mind off of things, have a good time for 45 minutes to an hour or so just to submerge you in some sports, get you out of any worries or anything like that. I know I might catch some backlash for the last couple minutes or however long the last segment I talked about because people not might not agree with me and I understand that. I am always up for discussion about this. I mean, if you see me out and you want to talk about it, I'm more than willing to have that conversation with you, but I I mean, it's a difficult subject to talk about. I get that and Everyone, I feel like, has an opinion and a viewpoint on it, and like I said, I I might not agree with what you say, and I might, I might, but either way, I'm going to respect your viewpoints and your opinion on the subject. So, that's going to do it for episode 21 of Carson Sack. What I want to get going in the coming weeks is the mail sack. Um... Okay, for example, if you want to shoot me a text, want to shoot me a DM, if you want to call me, if you if you want to mail in a letter, which I don't know why the hell do you want to do that, if you want to shoot me an email, karascarson at yahoo.com, go right ahead. I love to hear from fans, obviously. You all make the show. I love having you. But um, like last week, for example, when I talked about center football, it's because one of my buddies texted me and said, Hey, can you talk about this? I am willing to talk about anything sports related in any way. So literally just get a hold of me and I will make sure the topic comes up. Just an update on that game where center went to Barry. Unfortunately, center did lose 28, 14, but I think they're going to rebound. I literally don't think they're going to lose a game the rest of the year. I don't know enough about it. I haven't checked out it. I haven't watched it. But I do know that center always rebounds, always is a good team. Even after losses, even in losses, they play hard and they play play to the best of their ability. And I just think, like I said, I don't think center loses another game and really wins their conference as well. But like I said, in the coming weeks, I'm going to have segments on here. I'm going to try and get some more interviews, but the big thing I want to get going is the mail sack where maybe every other episode, or if I have enough every episode, I could get something going where I hear from the fans and can talk about what y'all are interested in. Now, I'm going to, in closing, I'm going to say, like I said, what makes me feel big time Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes if you haven't. Unfortunately, the way iTunes is set up, I can't see how many subscribers I have or who's subscribed. If I can see them, I don't know how the hell to do it. So if anybody knows out there how to do it, let me know. I'd love to know. What would make me feel great is a five-star rating and a review if you feel inclined to. Like I said, that makes me feel so big time to say that. Thank you for tuning in to the 21st episode of Carson Sack Podcast. Like I said, don't be afraid to go out of your way if you see the podcast at a bar to get it a drink. He'll get your back sooner or later. And as always, as we close on the sack, we will be seeing you.